0: He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even so we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by the by, by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. As we prepare to open God's word together this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask God's blessing and guidance as we study his word. Our Father, we are so grateful that we have your word. We have the living word and the written word. The living word is the Lord Jesus Christ and the written word is the thinking of Christ, as Paul said. And Father, if we want to know what your will is for our life, then we need to know your word. For you have revealed your your will to us in this dispensation through the completed canon of Scripture. Father, as we study these things, they give us great insight into who we are and what we are to be about. It is a section that focuses on what you have revealed to the Apostle Paul and the other Apostles about the purpose, the mission, the message of the church, which is to be our purpose, our mission, our message. Father, too often we get distracted by the cares of life And we forget that we have been called to a higher purpose, and that purpose is to fulfill this mission and message, and nothing dare get in our way. So, Father, we pray today that as we face the turmoil, the uncertainties, the chaos of the world around us, that we may realize that's nothing new. Certainly, the Apostle Paul faced similar situations in his time, and many millions and millions of Christians face many worse circumstances than we do. And many have faced these, the turmoil of, of wars and famines and pandemics that, that they had no knowledge of and that ravaged them and ravaged their lives. And yet believers throughout the ages have stood fast upon your word, realizing the joy and the peace and the stability that comes only from a relationship with you. And so, Father, we pray that as we study today, that we might be reminded of these things and that in the midst of these uncertainties, we might just be relaxed and rise above it all and focus upon that which your eternal plan has designed. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and we're continuing our study in this second chapter But I have entitled this message, Speed Bumps, Potholes, and Detours, Are God's Plan. Problem is, for most of us, we have plans that are not God's plans, and those plans really don't have any speed bumps, potholes, or detours. And the big issue in our sanctification is learning to adjust our plans to God's plans and not God's plans to our plans. So we have to go through a little bit of a learning experience, and that's what Paul's addressing with the Ephesian believers. I want to remind you a little bit about the chronology behind Paul's life and this epistle. Paul, on his second missionary journey, visited Ephesus for just a brief time at the end of that journey. But then he came back on his third journey, and he stayed for almost three years. Now, Ephesus was a sizable city. In fact, the, the excavation of Ephesus is the largest excavation of an ancient sh- city in the world. And it's just a marvelous place to go and to visit. But Paul was there for almost three years, so he got to know many, many people in the city. He got to know many of the believers there. They got to know him, and he taught daily in the school of Tychicus. And there he taught the Word, and so they're well grounded in the Word. And he was there for about uh, two and a half years, and in, and that's covered in Acts nineteen one to 41. After he finished his third uh, missionary journey, on his way back, he stopped briefly at Miletus. He was in a hurry to get back to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, which that year would have been as far as I could calculate, somewhere around the 21st, 22nd of May. And so he is trying to get back, and he did arrive in time, but before he went there, in the earlier, in mid-spring of 57, he met with the church elders there at Miletus and gave them some instruction and warning about the days to come when there would be uh, wolves in sheep's clothing who would come from even among themselves, and influenced the church in in Ephesus. So he's there. They know him. They know his mission. And when he leaves there, he went to Jerusalem. He arrived in time for Pentecost. But he's arrested on the Temple Mount. He's kept in prison for a brief time in Jerusalem, and then he's taken to Caesarea-by-the-Sea, which is where the governor had his Uh, had his headquarters, had his home, and he's kept in prison there for two-plus years. And then he's going to appeal to Caesar in terms of his verdict because nothing was really happening there at Caesarea. And so he goes by ship. There's a shipwreck. Eventually he makes it to Rome. And from um, uh, 60 to 62... He is in Rome. So we're looking at a period from the spring of 57 until sometime in 62, which is five years almost. And if you were living in Ephesus, apparently they thought that somehow God forgot what had happened and that Paul was sidelined and that this they were, as a result of those circumstances, they were becoming discouraged. They thought God had somehow fallen asleep at the switch or lost control or wasn't paying attention. And it's funny how that happens to us. We pray, we read, we study, for example, in terms of this last election. And whether you think there's been some foul play or not, we expected a totally different result. And that didn't happen consequence from that is that we often get discouraged we think well what is happening what's what's going on and and some people get get angry i think that's a common response i don't think that anyone in this room didn't go through and may still be going through some levels of anger as you think about what has happened Some of that may be justified because as Christians, we believe in a just government, a just society, and that there should be just elections. And we think that there have been some things done that were criminal. And so in one sense, we recognize that that this is not the way it should be. But we live in a fallen world, and we have lived in a historical bubble, as I've told you many, many times over the last Uh, 200 to 300 years, this nation grounded upon principles of God's word and a brilliant set of founding documents in the Declaration of Independence and Constitution. And really for the last hundred years, the courts and the legislatures and others have eroded the true meaning and application of the Constitution. We have a culture that has become vile and wicked in many, many ways. We have a culture that uh, allows uh, many types of injustice to continue that are not part of the Constitution. Many of them are the result of liberal policies that ultimately violate the intent and the thought of the Founding Fathers and they have produced cities that have just turned into rot. They have increased racial tension. They have produced homelessness beyond anything we could imagine in this land of the free. And it is the result of government that has grown too large and is inefficient in its bureaucracy. We have allowed evil to continue and to develop. We turn our back on many crimes, and we turn our back on the drug use and many other things that are going on, and it's gotten even worse in these recent times. But we must recognize that this is not unique in history. We may not have chosen to live in a time like this, but it's a remarkable time in which to live as we witness the unfolding of God's plan. And we need to recognize that God never loses control of his plan. And we have studied the opening verses here in uh, Ephesians 1, where Paul interrupts his thinking, but he sets a particular topic in, in, um, in force here. In verse 1 he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles... Now, as I've taught you, what happens is he goes into a diversion, which is really on point as he's giving them the reason that they should not be discouraged. And when he ends this section in verse 13, he says, Therefore, I ask you, do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Don't be discouraged. Don't give in to those mental attitude sins. Don't let anger have its way. Don't be resentful. Don't be depressed. Don't be discouraged because God is still in control. You see, the underlying question that Paul is really asking them is, he says, how has my arrest and imprisonment for five years changed God's plan for your life? And see, that's what they were doing. They were thinking, well. Paul's in prison. We can't go forward with the church. We can't do anything. And and they were discouraged and depressed. And the fact is that whatever happened to Paul, and when he would go through his second imprisonment just about five years later, that he would end up being martyred. He would, was beheaded under the worst years of Nero. And so we get our eyes on people, we get our eyes on human institutions as the source of stability, as the source of hope, rather than the fact that we need to have our focus on God. The key underlying question for us today is, how has the election of this last Tuesday changed God's plan for your life? Not a bit. And see, every time that you think about what happened and who's in charge and what policies may or may not come into effect, and you start worrying about it and getting unstable and having emotionally uh, sinful responses, you just remind yourself, how has this changed what God wants me to do? How has this changed God's plan for my life? It hasn't. Sometimes we might be tempted for example, that look at what happened. I need to go somewhere else. Well, first of all, there is no place else to go. And number two, that's not God's plan for your life. God didn't say that when things get tough, you need to go find some place where they're not going to be tough. God said in this life, we're going to encounter various trials, various tests. You don't get to pick which ones they are. And we know that the testing of our faith produces endurance, And so we get the privilege of living in a situation, as we have in the past, where the administration is not going to do the things we think they ought to do and where every time we hear the news it's going to be something that's going to upset us. We just need to focus on God and get the distractions out of the way. And that is exactly what Paul is saying here, is that we are God's plan is not hindered one bit and hasn't changed one bit just because there are unforeseen negative consequences and circumstances in in our life. We realize that when we hit things like what happened on Tuesday, and on Wednesday I was laid up, I pulled a muscle in my back and I was laid up and Trying to deal with that and just trying to ignore everything else that was going on and, and frankly we need not give up yet. Uh, I saw an email today just briefly. We we need to keep going. There are legal issues that need to be hammered out in court. There needs, there are a lot of things that still need to be done and that's good and that should not be a distraction. It's not an either or. We need to be focused on God's mission for us. But remember, each of us as a citizen of this country had certain responsibilities to fulfill our citizenships in a way that that glorifies God. And that means that we need to be in pursuit of justice and righteousness as much as we possibly can. But that that ultimately is not the reason that God has put us here. We need to realize that this is a call for us to Take some spiritual inventory. Maybe you have put too much hope in politics or in the election of certain people to office. Now, there's nothing wrong with hoping that certain people will be elected and hoping that certain policies will go into a place, but when that supplants our focus on the word, then we've gotten our priorities out of whack. And we need to recognize that, that this is what happens all through life because of our sin nature. We put our hope on people and policies rather than on God. God is always and forever our only source of hope, our only source of meaning and stability. And there have been believers who have lived throughout the ages who have lived in, in much, much worse circumstances and situations and had an incredible uh, joy and peace and happiness carrying out God's mission for us. We fail to recognize that what God is doing may not be what we think he ought to be doing. So we assume that we know what God is doing and what his plan is going to be, and then when it doesn't come to pass, we get all upset about it. But we are to recognize that we are to let God's plan unfold. We don't know. We may be two weeks from the rapture. We may be 200 years from the rapture. I think we're closer than we than I could say we're closer than we've ever been, but that's true every day. But I think that more and more things are happening, and God is working. We have no idea how those events are going to unfold in the days prior to the rapture, if it comes in our lifetime, or it may not come in our lifetime. But we are to be focused on God's plan and not hope that, oh, the rapture will come. As the saying goes, there's not a single problem in my life that the rapture wouldn't solve. But that's not supposed to be how we live our lives. We are looking for the blessed hope, but we have to live Day by day. And God has given us, as we learn and have learned in this passage, as He did for the Apostle Paul, that we have a mission that is connected to a message. And that is what Paul was focusing on in this chapter when he is talking about this mystery, this new revelation that God gave to him that was focused on this new entity of the church that was to be a new man, a new body, a new temple comprised of Jew and Gentile equally in the body of Christ and how remarkable that was. And that was part of his message. And his mission was to spread the message. But that message and that mission didn't stop with Paul because that mission and message has gone on to all of us and that's what our lives are supposed to all be about. Not about politics, not watching the 24-7 news cycle all of the time and not letting our emotional stability be somehow connected to who gets elected to leadership in Washington. Now, you know me. You know what I've taught. That's important. Because as Paul says in First Timothy chapter two, we are to pray that we can uh pray for our leaders that we can live in a time where we can lead our spiritual lives in, in peace and stability. And when that doesn't happen, then in our country at least, under our system of government, we need to be involved not just in terms of prayer, but also other things. But we can never let those other things override our mission, and our message. And that's what happens too often, and it happens in other things too. People get caught up in sports, and all of a sudden sports is more important to them than the mission and message that God gave them. Or it may be their career, or it may be uh, the pursuit of some hobby, and next thing you know, uh, they don't have enough time to be studying the Word, to be in Bible class, to be memorizing Scripture. And this is a wake-up call. To every single one of us, my, my, myself included, we need to be thinking that things have a potential of deteriorating rapidly, whether that is two years or ten years, but in our lifetime, where we could see a radical change in the government of our nation. Now none of us wants that. None of us is going to give up and roll over and let that happen. But if that happens, we need to be prepared. And that means we need to be studying Scripture. Every single year we put up a reading plan on the church website and Dean Bible Ministries website to read the Bible through a year. We need The only thing that's going to give us stability is having the Word of God in our souls. So we need to be on that. There are a lot of people who aren't doing that, and we need to all be doing that. Second, we need to be memorizing Scripture. We need to be learning the promises of God, promises that I go over all the time. And those promises and many, many others we need to memorize because just because we have our Bibles today doesn't mean we'll always be able to have them with us. There may come a time when all that we have of the Bible is what we've memorized in our soul. And we can't wait until it's too late to say, oh, you know, I need to be memorizing scripture. We should be doing that already. And we should be involved in witnessing to people, evangelize. That's part of our mission, helping people understand the gospel. That's the only thing that will truly change this country. It has become so pagan, and there are so many people who only know of Jesus Christ as a curse word. They know nothing about him. And there are people and, and cultures and subcultures within this country, especially in certain geographical areas like in the northeast and northwest, where uh, the majority of the culture is anti-Christian. The only thing that's going to change this country is to get the gospel to people and for them to respond and re- be restored to God's, God's word. So we need to be careful when we think about what is going on in terms of current events. It's easy to have a knee-jerk reaction and to get angry. As Christians, we have a desire for justice and a desire for righteousness. There's a lot of injustice in our nation right now. It's an evil culture, as I've said. There are many, many problems that need to be addressed and that are not being addressed by either side of the aisle. And we see these social problems that are taken advantage of by the enemy in order to stir up trouble. We cave in too easily to to worry. And so we have to figure out what the Word of God says so that we can avoid giving in to worry. Some of the promises that we should memorize and be reminded of today are first of all, 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Nothing that happened this week was unknown to God. He knew about it in eternity past, and he's given us everything we need to handle it. We need to just learn to apply what we've been learning in Bible class for decades and claim the promises, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. In Philippians 4, 5, and 6 verses, I quote, frequently, be, uh, um, excuse me, I got the verses wrong, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your request be made known unto God and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.28 And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Who's called according to his purpose? Every single person who has trusted in Jesus Christ. And so we are called according to his purpose, and so we need to live in light of that purpose, and that's the mission that God has for us. Jesus knew these times would come, and he knew it would come upon his disciples. And he said to them, uh, as they were walking from having the Passover meal, the Seder meal, as we just celebrated, on the way to Gethsemane, he made a number of statements and promises about what was coming. And in John fourteen twenty seven, he said, Peace I leave with you. It's almost like saying Jesus is a liar when we don't have peace. He said, Peace I leave, leave with you. My peace I give to you. That's a supernatural peace. It's not the calm that your pagan Buddhist neighbor has when he meditates. He has a measure of something, but it isn't the peace that is produced by God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit produces this peace, love, joy, peace. It's only the result of walking by the Spirit. He says, my peace I give to you not as the world gives do I give to you, let not your heart be troubled. The idea is don't be agitated. Don't be anxious. Don't be worried. Don't be caught up with the details of life, wondering what's going to happen tomorrow, what's going to happen the next day. Jesus said we're to live one day at a time and not let what comes in the future worry and destroy our stability today. Jesus also told them if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. What we are witnessing in our country is that the the evil side of worldliness is being exposed. And we see it for what it is, but those who are not believers, and many who are believers with no doctrine, have fallen in love with the world. And so they hate the truth. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were out of the world... The world would love its own. Yet because you are not out of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now he's talking to his 11 disciples, but that's true for every single believer. The world hates us. It's not in love with Christianity. In verse 20 he says, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. One of the periodicals that we get is from an organization called Voice of the Martyrs. And I encourage you, we have some copies around the church, and I encourage you, you can go to their website and read a lot of very interesting, fascinating stories about what's really going on in the world outside of our little safety bubble in the United States. And at the end of the recent one, uh, this is uh, an article originally published years ago by the founder of, of uh, Voice of the Martyrs, Richard Wormbrand, who was from Romania and was uh, arrested, persecuted, suffered a great deal in prison under the communist regime. And he wrote this many years ago. And I just want to read a couple of examples for us this morning. He said, I think of a young girl of our Romanian underground church whose activities were discovered by the secret police. She had been guilty of secretly distributing Gospels and teaching children about Christ. To make her arrest as painful as possible, they decided to wait a few weeks for her wedding day. When she was dressed for the event that every woman looks forward to, the police suddenly broke in. Anticipating their intentions, she held out her hands, which they handcuffed roughly looked lovingly at her groom, then kissed the chain, saying, I thank my heavenly bridegroom for this jewel he has presented to me on my marriage day. I thank him that I am worthy to suffer for him. I think God gives us grace to handle these kinds of situations, but we have to be oriented to Christ before that will really happen. She was dragged off to prison, leaving behind weeping Chris. Christians, and a weeping bridegroom, and five years later she was released, haggard, broken, looking 30 years older. She had remained faithful, and her intended had waited for her. He gives a second example. He says, a Soviet prisoner who was mocked unmercifully said, Many fear suffering. In the past, I too feared. But the presence of the Lord in jail has given me so many happy experiences that I would not have changed them uh, for years of easy living in freedom. And then he writes about an episode in Ukraine. He said in Ukraine, the Christian uh, Terelia was put in a psychiatric asylum. I can clearly envision that happening today. The sadistic psychiatrist Butkovich told him, The fact that you call yourself a Christian shows already you have a serious and irremediable sickness. Faith in God is mass psychosis, a kind of schizophrenia. But instead of brooding about his suffering, Torellia brought officers of the secret police to Christ. They provided him with paper and pencil and smuggled out a whole notebook of his joyous poems praising God. Out of the mire of suffering grows the lily of joy in the Lord. We never know what's coming. We have to prepare today. And that means we have to take stock of what's going on in our lives. Another promise is John 16:33. Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. That's a promise. You will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And he did that in the way he lived, walking by the Spirit and applying the promises of God. Philippians 4.12, 4.13 is the promise I'm looking at here, but we have to have the context. The the promise is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but that's not some sort of positive mental attitude spin, which is how a lot of Christians take it. Paul said in the previous verse, I know how to be abased. He said, I know how to be poor, and I know how to have nothing. And I know how to abound. I know how to have everything that I could hope for. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things means I can handle any set of circumstances without it shaking my spiritual life. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so this is what Paul is trying to convey to his readers in Ephesians chapter 3. As we've studied this mystery doctrine rationale that he has uh, explained to them, that he is called as a... An apostle. Earlier I had this verse out of order. Let me see if I can find it. Oh. Here it is. In three two, we read him saying, If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you. That's the first thing he, he starts with as he is explaining to them why they should have stability and not be discouraged why he's, why he's in prison. And we ask this question, what's the meaning of the phrase, the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me? And that's repeated again in verse 7, which we're studying today, where he says, of which, that means the gospel in the previous verse, I became a minister, and then he uses that phrase again, according to the grace of God, which was given to me. And so we have to understand the significance of that phrase as it applies to us. That that phrase as it applies to us indicates that we have this mission. And his mission was through the gospel. Now, I want to help you understand this particular phrase. As we look at these two verses, where he says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. That This is the content of the mystery which we studied last time, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. So it's fellow heirs, fellow members, and fellow partakers of his promise. There's equality between Jew and Gentile now. And it is through the gospel So as we look at this phrase, I think it's important that we understand what the gospel is. It is used three different ways in the Scripture. Actually, there's some more if you want to talk about the gospel of the kingdom message in the time of Christ's incarnation, which was related to the coming of the kingdom. But just thinking in terms of today, the narrow meaning, what's the good news? That my sins are forgiven, that Christ died for me on the cross, and if I believe in that, I have eternal life. That's the narrow gospel, just the information needed so that when I die, I will be face-to-face with the Lord. But Paul uses it in a broad meaning in several places where it includes not just the information needed to have eternal life, but also the information to have the abundant life. That's in John 10, 10, when Jesus said, the thief comes to steal and destroy. But I have come that you may first have life. That is salvation, justification, salvation. You have eternal life. You're no longer spiritually dead. You're regenerated, and you now have spiritual life. And he says, secondly, and he uses an and there, which has this sense in the, in the Greek of even, in addition to. I came to have life and in addition to have, have it more abundantly. See, that's living the Christian life, where we realize that abundant life that Christ has given us. And that's really what Paul is talking about here. And part of that includes this third statement I put here, because when he uses this term through the gospel in the context of Ephesians 3, 6, and 7, he's talking about the good news that the barrier between Jew and Gentile was removed, which is what we studied in chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, and that the barrier between all of us and God has been removed so that this... Being fellow heirs, fellow members of the same body, and fellow partakers of his promise in Christ is through the gospel. That's that's part of the gospel. Not what we need to believe to be saved, but it's the result of that in our new position in Christ. And so he says in verse 7, Of which that is the gospel, I became a minister according to, and then there's that phrase we're looking at, according to the gift of the grace of God which was given to me. We studied this several weeks ago, and when we looked at that, I said it's easy for people to think the gift of grace, okay, that's salvation. But that's not how this phrase is used. And it's used in an identical sense at the beginning and end of this section. Where Paul says in verse two, "You have heard of the dispensation or the administration of the grace of God, which was given to me." We have to understand the whole phrase and what it means. And he repeats that in verse seven, "The grace of God given to me." And we saw that that this is a phrase that where grace is used in a way similar to a, a, a form of the word charismata or the Greek dorian, which means a gift that referred to gifts. And so when Paul says this, he's talking about the spiritual gift and appointment and commission given to him as an apostle. And verse uh, 7 of chapter 4 uses it that way. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then it goes on and talks about spiritual gift. And in Romans 12:6, he says, since we have gifts, there he uses the word charismata, according to the grace given, same words that we see in this phrase, the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to the proportion of faith, and then he continues to talk about the spiritual gifts. So we saw, secondly, that Paul uses the phrase grace given to me to refer to his spiritual gift of apostle and the mission and message of that office, as he states in 1 Corinthians 3.10, according to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder. So he's using that imagery of a wise master builder to refer to uh, his role and his mission and ministry as an apostle. Uh, Romans twelve three says for the grace given to me I say to everyone among you see he's exercising his apostolic authority so what he's essentially saying is for through the apostolic gift this grace given to me I am exhorting you to do uh, to do this and that ministry that was given to him was primarily to the Gentiles Acts twenty six seventeen tells us that. That God told him, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. His mission was to take this gospel to the Gentiles that there was now one new man, one new body, one new temple, Jew and Gentile together. That is still the message that goes with the gospel to understand our identity after we're saved, to understand this new identity that has been given to us. And so verse 7, Paul says, of which, that is, of the gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me, that is, apostle with my apostolic mission. And this is according to the working of his power. It is God's power who is at work in us, not our power. And he says then in verse 8, to me the very least of all the saints this grace was given. So again, that reinforces this idea that this is talking about his mission. He's called to be an apostle, his, his, his office, his mission, and his, his ministry. To me, the, this grace was given, and what was this grace to proclaim, to evangelize, literally, it's evangelizami. This grace was given to preach, that is to evangelize the Gentiles, and to uh, help them, the, the good news, and to help them understand the unfathomable riches or the wealth of Christ that is now ours. So whatever pathetic things happen in the realm of our culture, our civilization, your business, your life, nothing measures up to the fact that we are in Christ and we have a wealth of blessings. That's our identity. And our mission is not to reform the culture not to reform the politics, and there's nothing wrong with that, but that's not our primary mission, so don't let it get in the way. Our mission is to tell people about Jesus Christ, to grow to spiritual maturity, and to be able to carry out that ministry that God has given to us with reference to our spiritual gift in serving him in the body of Christ. So our third point was that the mission God gave to Paul as an apostle was to proclaim the mystery doctrine of the church, Jew and Gentile united together as one new man, one new body, and one new temple. And that's our passage. Uh, he was the least of the saints, and he was given this grace to uh, preach the good news to the Gentiles, the unsearchable wealth of Christ, and to reveal all about the dispensation or the administration of the mystery. Now, Paul's giving that as new information, new revelation. We have it in the scriptures, so we are to give that. It's bequeathed to us to continue to give that message, help people understand that. And so in conclusion, that phrase, grace given to me, refers to Paul's apostolic gifts and office, and it refers to our... Giftedness as believers, our mission to serve God and we serve God by continuing to carry out that mission and message to proclaim the good news, to teach people about the wealth of riches that we have in Christ and to teach them about their new, our our new identity in Christ. That is our message and mission. So Ephesians 3, 8 and 9 reminds us that this is what we are to be all about. Now, sometimes we get discouraged. I want to look at two passages before before I stop. Uh, The first one, I'm just going to summarize it. It is in the book of Habakkuk. You probably haven't read that recently in the Old Testament. But Habakkuk is a very fun little book to study because Habakkuk is just like us. And Habakkuk is sitting there looking at the culture of Judah at this time. And it is during the time when, uh, the nation is in great, uh, great and terrible sin. And it is a time when, um, uh, Jeconiah has been the king and things are just absolutely terrible. And so he looks around and he sees all of these things that are happening in Judah, and it troubles him, just like we look at stuff in our culture, and it troubles us. And so he says, God, you need to do something about this. How can you let these things go on, things that are going on in San Francisco and Los Angeles and Portland and Chicago and many, many other cities and in Houston in many places in Houston? How can you let this go on? You're going to judge us one of these days. So God comes along and he says, okay, here's here's the way I'm going to judge you. And that's what he said to Habakkuk. I know just the thing. I have these Chaldeans over here, and I'm going to bring them in, and they are going to conquer you and destroy Jerusalem and destroy the temple, and they're going to wipe you out. And Habakkuk just goes, he's so self-righteous. What? How can you use these horrible, pagan, wicked Chaldeans They don't even know you. They have no knowledge of you. How can you use them to discipline us? We're your people. And then God gives him a little insight into his character in the second chapter. And at the end of God explaining who he is and his right to do what he wants and to discipline the nations according to his own plan, Habakkuk truly changes his mind it that is the biblical term repentance and at the end of his last psalm last chapter where he praises praises god he concludes it with these three verses he says though the fig tree may not blossom in other words though there's no agricultural production and we're in a famine Though, though the economics, the economy of the country is destroyed. Though the fig tree may not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will, I will have joy in the God I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on my high hills. Not high heels, high hills. Another kind of attitude that we should have. Though everything fall apart, God in his justice is in control of of history, There's no big surprise here for, for him. There is for us. And when God is doing something, we should not sit back and, and get depressed, discouraged, because that's God's plan. God's plan includes potholes and detours, speed bumps, and we need to recognize that and not try to change them. Job says something very similar in Job 13, 15. He says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Jeremiah lived through what God told Habakkuk was going to happen. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. Jeremiah proclaimed to The people in Judah what was going to happen you have given yourselves over to idolatry and all sorts of sexual perversion you have been sacrificing your children in the arms of Baal and Mike and Chemosh and God is going to come and judge us and we are going to be destroyed by the Babylonians Isaiah had predicted this several, several hundred years earlier 150 years or so earlier and so Jeremiah witnessed this, and then he witnessed the destruction of his beloved Jerusalem. He was a great patriot. He loved the Lord. He was obedient to the law. But they were misinterpreting the law. They were misapplying the law, and they were ignoring the law, same as we have too many people in our culture misinterpreting, misapplying, and ignoring the Constitution. And they have applied it in illegitimate ways, and our culture is rotted on the inside. And I don't know what is going to happen. Maybe the president will be uh, blessed by God in his attempts to uh, address the corruption in this election. Maybe not. But whichever way it goes, we need to recognize that we can trust God, and we're not going to let whatever happens in the political sphere impact and upset us. We may grieve for our nation. Jeremiah grieved for his nation. The Lord Jesus Christ also grieved for them. Remember that passage in, in, in Luke where the Lord Jesus Christ, Luke 19, the Lord Jesus Christ on the Mount of Olives looks the city and weeps for Jerusalem. There is nothing wrong with having grief over what may be transpiring in our beloved nation. Nothing wrong with that. Jeremiah wept, Jesus wept, for the for the nation for what was happening. That didn't change the fact that, that what happened was the just thing. So this is how uh, Jeremiah responds to it in Luke uh, Lamentations, rather, chapter three, verse eighteen. He said, and this is this is where he's down. He's, he, he says, my hope my strength and my hope have perished from the lord a lot of people felt that way this last week i just i got i have no hope jeremiah felt that way that's your sin nature talking we need to get our heads out of our sin nature my strength and my hope he said have perished from the lord and he says remember my affliction and roaming the wormwood and the gall my soul st- still remembers and sinks within me. He's remembering the way it was and the way it ought to be. And then he says, this I recall to mind. What's he recalling? He's recalling who God is and God's plan. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. He says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. After I close in prayer, we will stand and we're going to sing together, Great is thy faithfulness. Think through the words. They are tremendous for a time like this. Our Father, thank you for this opportunity to be reminded of your plan, your purpose, that it is it is perfect. We may not understand it. We may not appreciate it. It's not our plan. It's not the way we would do things. But we need to align our thoughts to your thoughts and our ways to your ways. And we need to follow the example of Jeremiah. Our hope is in you. It's not in the things of the world. It's not in what we would hope to happen in our political system. It is in our relationship to you and realizing that the mission and ministry you've given us has never changed. There's nothing about the election this last week that changes anything about your plan for our life. And we need to get back in gear and get focused, constantly remind ourselves of this in the coming weeks and days as the vicissitudes of this election go back and forth and all kinds of things are going on. We ought not to pay attention. Just do what we can and focus on you. For you are our hope and our stability. Father, we pray for any who might listen to this message that salvation comes from you is not... On our based on our efforts you have provided us with the perfect Savior the Lord Jesus Christ who died for our sins and that by trusting only in him and only trusting in him we have everlasting life he alone is our Savior he alone died for our sins and he died for all of them so that there is nothing for us to add we cannot add to it if we try we destroy it we are to believe in Jesus Christ alone. Father, we pray that we might be strengthened and encouraged this day for what we have studied in Christ's name. Amen.